Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. I want to see science serve a useful purpose to improve the standard of living for all people. Why is anyone fighting food advance? A very small percentage of the world's population is fortunate enough to have the luxury of turning down food. We've arranged a society based on science and technology. There was nobody who understands anything about science and technology. You can't build a peaceful world on empty stomachs and human misery. You're listening to Talking Biotech, a weekly podcast illuminating issues in agricultural and medical biotechnology. Your questions and concerns are addressed using a science-based approach with the goal of driving discovery to application with communication. Now here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulton. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast where we discuss contemporary issues in science and technology with a focus on biotechnology and the new innovations that can help people and help the planet. I'm Kevin Fulta, and today we'll be talking with Mark Linus. Uh, Mark and I uh, recently met in Africa um, again. You know, we well, not in Africa again, but <laughs> we got to uh, meet again and got to hang out together. We were together about a year ago in um, Northern Ireland where we were able to speak in Belfast and uh, with an audience on a Q&A session. And it was really nice to see him again in Uganda. So uh, welcome to the podcast, Mark. Thanks, Kevin. How are you? Uh, doing all right. And really nice to have you on. You know, it's, it's episode 106, so it's way too long to have you on, and uh, to wait to have you on. So uh, here we go. So how do we... Uh, how might people who have paid attention to biotechnology and uh, genetic engineering in plants particularly, how would they really first hear your name coming up in discussion? Um, well, I've, I've had, a, I've had a, almost as long a career in the biotech space as you have, Kevin, although um, <laughs> I, was, I spent the first half of my career trying to destroy the work people like you were doing, with some success. I mean... Um, so as an anti-GMO activist back in the 90s, I, we used to go out and destroy um, experiments, you know, some of which were never then restarted. So we were, I mean, I, would, I, I don't know whether I should characterize it as anti-science, but we were definitely against this, this field of, of the, this, ex, this field in the sense of it expanding the boundaries of human knowledge. We actually felt that scientists shouldn't find these things out. Um, but I've had a, a hundred, uh, 100% change of perspective on this. Um, I mean, it's a, it's a long story. I'm sure you don't want the whole thing reprised, but um, right now I'm with the uh, Alliance for Science at Cornell University trying to kind of empower this next generation of, uh, of, of scientists, science practitioners so that they can better explain um, the work that they do and why it's so valuable to people like me who would otherwise be, <laughs> be out there destroying it. 
Well, maybe that's a good place to to just start today's discussion is, you know, you were somebody who very passionately felt that this was an improper technology or that its application was improper. Was it and was it really the technology itself or was it really its use and the companies that did it or was it all of the above? Um, I mean, if you're asking me what the kind of perfect storm was back in the 90s that set me and all these other people on this uh, on this path. It was a combination of things. It was the trait. It was the Monsanto. It was the fact that it was an American multinational. It was the fact, but it was really probably the trait more than anything. So it was the the glyphosate tolerance, the Roundup Ready trait, which to us, I mean, we didn't know a huge amount about farming. And the idea that you were going to sterilize the fields and turn everything to a monoculture with this by spraying, you know, it's not you don't spray, you douse. You douse this weed killer all over, all, all over the crop and stuff. And why would you want to do that? Um, uh, with with a new technology which may or may not have risk. And so there was no good side to it, and therefore why would you accept any degree of, of risk or any degree of novelty, in fact, in, in food if it was only to benefit the bottom line of selling more chemicals for this American multinational? So look at it that way, and you can see very much, very clearly, in fact, why why the, the, the opposition was so strong here in Europe. Yeah, and, and I hope that this is all a big part of your... You have a book coming out in, what, January or so? Um, sometime in the spring, we're just doing the references and, and getting permissions and, and actually doing a legal check at the moment. It's <laughs> <laughs> stuff's quite spiky. Um, and I wanted to write honestly about some of the other personalities um, who've been involved in the anti scene in particular, because it goes actually goes back a lot further than me. It goes right back to the um, to the 1970s. Um, so the anti GMO scene, in fact, is at least as old as the the technology of genetic modification so the the deep history is worth understanding because you can better really see why we came to where we are today and figure out really how we can move forward perhaps more productively and the book's called seeds of science um yeah and uh yeah it should be around in spring 2018 okay so come back on when that comes out and let's have a conversation about the book um, i'm looking forward to it a lot because people always ask where did this train derail you know where did we really uh find the technology being maligned when it's a quote that uh jack bobo always says in his talks is um people love innovation almost as much as they despise change (laughs) and i like i like jack and he's I, i respect him a lot but i think there's more to it than that it's not just fear of change it's about what kind of change there is that you see happening I mean, why would you have change imposed on you by some, when somebody else is benefiting and it's only going to make your world worse? And if you see it that way, then yes, then, then opposition isn't an irrational thing because you're, you're scared of the future. It actually makes a lot of sense. And so it depends how the different stakeholders in the scene see things at the time. Uh, and sometimes opposing change makes, makes all the sense in the world. Um, but then, of course, you're, once you start down the road of blocking innovation, then there's all sorts of things which don't happen which might have actually made the world better. Uh, you know, and that's what, to come back to Africa. That's what we see now. Is is a lot of NGOs out there who are blocking innovations that could actually improve the livelihoods of some of the poorest farmers in the world. And that then is an inequitable, you know, iniquitous situation of, of almost the reverse of what I was seeing back in the 1990s when I imagined I was the good guy trying to trying to defend small farmers. Now it's now the boots on the other foot, and it's the anti-GMOs people who are actually attacking the rights of small farmers. Yeah, and that's and that's perfect lead in to where we're going today. Back, um, it was about a few weeks ago now that we were able to get together in Africa, and um, spoke at this conference, which was a, a conference on African food security, particularly in Uganda. 
And uh, it was really a wonderful conference, all kinds of dignitaries from all over, and, and we discussed this on the last two podcasts. But um, your talk was especially important to me because you started out by talking about the concept of kind of the antiquated concept of the dark continent. And we really, you know, as you say, the boot was on the other foot. Um, can you go back and maybe review what you meant by talking about the dark continent and how that really meshed with its uh, historical use versus really its contemporary application? Well, the, I mean, the, the concept of the dark continent was um, was a colonial era sort of European construct about how Africa was imagined, you know, and it's there in Conrad's um, famous novel, Heart of Darkness. Um, you know, and it's, it's, it's reprised, of course, in Apocalypse Now, um, the movie about Vietnam. So you've got this kind of, this, this, this dark interior where all sorts of strange things go on and where it's essentially, where, the, you know, there's no control and where um, all sorts of barbaric things happen. And so Africa was imagined that way and was known as the, sort of the dark continent. And the converse of that was the white man's burden. And so you've got all these kind of racial um, colonial things going on. But I, I just thought this was interesting because in, in many ways, Europe is the dark continent when it comes to, uh, to biotechnology, because in what, this is where I'm speaking from at the moment. Um, I'm, I'm in the UK, but, you know, Europe stopped, basically stopped all research, stopped all field trials. Um, there's no, there's very little genetic, genetically modified crops growing anywhere in the continent. And they're trying to impose this on Africa. So, in fact, uh, while, while Africa actually has this has this opportunity to develop its agriculture in a way which it, it becomes more productive for small farmers, and that's being blocked by European funding and European-based NGOs who see this as somehow inappropriate because they didn't want it in Europe. And so, the you know this this kind of idea of the heart of darkness or the dark continent was actually spreading this mythology to Africa, where 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 this technology could really benefit. And from your uh, work with the uh, Cornell Alliance for Science and really just your boots on the ground, um, I don't want to say activism, but your, your boots on the ground uh, experience in the African continent, what are some of the most pressing needs for this technology that you've seen? Well, I mean, at Cornell, we it's, it's, it's a long way from being just me. We have a whole team and we also have um, fellows now in most of these countries. So we've got four or five fellows from uh, Uganda who've been to Cornell and who've um, participated in, in all sorts of different training and learning and, and experience sharing with, with the wider team and the wider movement. So we, we see this, I think, as a, <clears throat> a kind of a pro-science movement, which is um, trying to address poverty and insecurity, at least in one, in one way, um, through, through demystifying this technology and trying to make it more available. So, I mean, in Uganda, there's some very specific... Um, issues which, which Kevin, you saw yourself in the field in terms of banana bacteria wilt, cassava viruses. So some of these staple crops are very seriously affected by novel or spreading diseases, which are potentially affecting food security in the whole country and indeed in the whole region. And there are biotech GMO uh, solutions, but they're being blocked because of the, the myths and the fears surrounding the, the whole issue of biotechnology. And, and what is the blocking like so when you're talking about you know, the technology is not reaching the field uh, why is that and and who is behind that and, and i guess either in the in europe or in the u.s um in well in africa the there's an there's a very strong ngo scene and all of the ngos pretty much are anti-gmo because that's the ideology that that you come out with if you're supporting sustainable farming or um what they call food sovereignty and so there's 
there's a lot of different political concepts flying around here. Food sovereignty means you have to produce, you know, or at least control your food within the country. So it has kind of nationalistic overtones, um, like autarky, really. But this is a very, it's kind of a left-wing concept, but it goes against food security, which means rather more pragmatically that people have enough to eat, um, which is, for me, I think that's more... Um, more urgent really is that uh, you know when you've got countries with high rates of high rates of um, malnutrition and childhood stunting and uh, infant mortality that that um, mothers and, and young children have have access to sufficient food supplies and sufficient nutritious food um, and and some some of these projects are, are biofortification for example they may or may not be GMO I mean that really doesn't matter as you and I both know. Um, you know whether they're improving the vitamin A content of, of sweet potato or adding higher zinc levels to rice. I mean, to deal with some of these micronutrient deficiencies, which really do set back the life prospects of uh, of, of young children in particular. Yeah, so that's a that is a really an important point because folks like Harvest Plus, who I'm dying to get on the podcast, um, have done some really nice work with improving, uh, like you say, the beta carotene uh, content, the vitamin A content of things like cassava, but just your traditional breeding. And uh, this isn't necessarily a biotech thing, but are people uh, in the continent, so the NGOs especially, is there a food sovereignty pushback against those kinds of technologies like just traditional breeding because they're uh, originating from some sort of efforts that are coordinated with the West? Not just that. I mean, yes, they do oppose them, but they, they basically oppose modern agriculture in totality. So they also oppose mechanization. Um, they oppose hybrid crops even i mean so the anti-gmo people in tanzania i heard recently had went to the president and said that they should stop um drought tolerance uh, conventional drought tolerance um uh, genes because they were gmos and therefore they were poisoning farmers and all this kind of nonsense and so they they actually have a, in my view a very pernicious influence because their their kind of ideal is what they call agroecological which isn't really ecological at all. What it means is, is subsistence. And so they, they, they want to preserve a situation where African farmers, particularly women, are working very hard all hours of the day and have very low productivity and are barely able to feed their families. And not, not just that, but they have to go and gather wood to, to cook with and they have to go and fetch water from miles away and, and live, you know, what we'd call a, a, a lifestyle of, of extreme poverty. So these NGOs, which ostensibly... Kind of want to address poverty actually are in the position of of ensuring that poverty remains, and for me that's that's a real a really deep moral injustice. Yeah, I agree a hundred percent. I I was it was my first time on the continent over there, and to see people you know you always heard about it, but to see people walking kilometers and kilometers or to go down a, a road. And have lines of people, I shouldn't say lines, but uh, occasional people who are walking down the shoulder with a gallon of water or, well, a big jug of water in each hand and another one on their head, uh, walking down the road just picking up the day's water from some sort of either a pump that was out remote or even a swamp uh, to take it back home. Um, you're, you, we're dealing with places, I went with Clet out to uh, a farm where... Uh, there, there's no water, there's no uh, electricity. And everything that is done there is done by um, by just basically just getting by, just by subsistence. And why are NGOs, like what's in it for them? And, and is it just a, a philosophy or is it, 
is there something in it for them to ensure that Africa doesn't move from subsistence to surplus? Actually, I think it's a philosophy more than anything. Uh, I, I don't subscribe to any, I mean, it's not really a conspiracy theory, but I don't think there's um, many, I mean, they're not doing it for the money, they're not doing it to try and protect European exports or some sort of uh, evil intent, which we otherwise wouldn't understand. I think it's basically just comes down to a worldview. And you need to understand where the Greens are coming from on this. I mean, you need to go back and read E.F. Schumacher's Small is Beautiful and understand what the wider critique is of industrial society, right? I mean, the the, the whole idea of, of going back to the land, we need to live closer to nature. You know, we should stop using electricity. We should stop using modern technology. These are very central to, to green philosophy. And if that's the case, why would you be in Africa trying to ensure that people have access to modern electricity and, and modern facilities and, in fact, modern civilization at all? Um, and so I think once you get a, get a handle on that, you can really you can understand a bit better what's going on here. Yeah, maybe I need to visit that because I, I have a really hard time with uh, folks who willfully block the access to innovation or a technology. It doesn't matter what it is, whether it's vaccines or whether it's any kind of healthcare or education or whatever, it just drives me nuts. And, and especially when you see the need, and, and for me it was really particularly sad seeing the, uh, the banana plants, the matoke plants, behind fences with barbed wire on top. And, you know, you were there. We stood there together and looked at this. And to me it was extremely emotional. I mean, it was really hard for me to um, be among technology that could change the lives on the people just a kilometer away yet we they they could not access that and uh yeah yeah so like that for me the first, it was like that for me the first time as well but i'm kind of used to it now because i've been there <laughs> numerous times and the locks are still there and the fences are still there too um and but you know as we both know things are changing and they passed uh, a biosafety law um just the week that we well actually just the week after the conference um and that will hopefully begin to unblock the pipeline so that there will now be a system whereby the plant research institutes, which are all you know, in the public sector and are producing things which should be able to be used by farmers, will be able to then um, get things out much more widely. I um, mean, there'll still be all of the regulatory stuff to go through, but um, at least there's a, there's a prospect now that some of these uh, disease-resistant and drought-tolerant crops which are being developed by the plant scientists might eventually reach the farmers. Not immediately, but you know, maybe it's going to be two or three years still to go, but at least they should be able to get out there soon. Yeah, it was, it's interesting because we were, um, I was, I came home from Uganda and I had to teach a class on the following Wednesday. And I talked to Klet, who is, you know, our, our friend there who's on the ground there. And I said, could you let me know how that biosecurity bill goes? And it was supposed to be discussed on Tuesday. And I don't know what happened there, if it did or didn't, if it carried over a day. But right before the class, I get a, an email from him that says the biosecurity bill is now law. And I, I actually cried about it because, you know, when, when you see technology in the field that can potentially change the lives of people, and I didn't, you know, and when you're out in the sticks there, you're out, you know, really far out in the, uh, in, in the way past the cities, there is such a critical need. And you see people who definitely would benefit from technology. And well, the myths they spread are so pernicious as well. I mean, when I was in Tanzania the first time, I was doing a, uh, doing a talk in a place called Morogora. And 
some of these NGO people stood up and they were speaking Swahili, so I didn't immediately understand what they were saying, but there was this kind of shocked silence and this sort of titter of laughter went around the room. And afterwards I said, what, what are these guys saying? And they said, if you, they said that if you take these GMO corn, these GMO maize, then it will make your children more feminine, make your children homosexual. And, and I just thought to myself, isn't this bizarre? What a world we're living in that these like European politically correct uh, funding sources <laughs> leave their defending organic agroecology are promoting some of the most reactionary, pernicious, disgusting myths out in the field in Africa. That's what they're funding. That's what their money's buying. I really couldn't believe it. Well, let's, uh, it's a really good point to take a short break. We're talking to Mark Linus, and when we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about what's happening in Africa with biosecurity and how that can really mesh with the idea of food sovereignty. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll be back in just a minute. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. We get a lot of questions about how this thing is financed, who does the production, and who does the website. Some even tell us they think it has the fingerprints of Monsanto. Well, allay your suspicions, chemtrail sniffer. This work is done 100% by your host, Kevin Folta. He personally pays for the server space and domain names, the whole enchilada. And you can tell by the flimsy production, he engineers this thing too. From arranging the guests to post-production to website, this is 100% his time and his dollars. So we're passing the hat of gratuity and asking you for a little contribution. Write a review on iTunes. Tell a friend. Post a flyer about this podcast on the Whole Foods Community Bulletin Board. See how long that stays there. We're rapidly moving up the iTunes ratings, and you gentle listener are the gas in the tank of science communication and the thorn in the side of agriculture misinformation. Now, back to the Talking Biotech Podcast, already in progress. And we're back on the Talking Biotech Podcast, today talking with Mark Linus about African food security and how that can really mesh with that concept of African food sovereignty. And uh, so, Mark, what were some of the other innovations that you've seen on the ground in Africa that could really help small farmers? Well, um, the, probably the most, the, the, the one that goes across the whole region is what's called WEMA, which stands for Water Efficient Maze uh, for Africa. And so that's a drought tolerance uh, trait, which is um, being uh, trialed in, uh, well, it's in Kenya, it's in Uganda, Mozambique, Tanzania. It's already available and farmers are already using it in South Africa because they've got a, they've got a better system and, and potentially in Malawi as well and one or two of the other countries. So... The idea, of course, is that then farmers would, in a drought year, of which there's many, particularly with climate change getting more severe, um, would, farmers would, would still get a, a reasonable yield um, from, from their maize crop because that maize is a real staple crop for, for really the whole region, north to, north to south. And um, so, you know, why would you not want farmers to be able to, to resist drought? Um, unfortunately, there's a lot of campaigns against that. The antis in Tanzania appeal to the president to try to get the president to suspend the field trials. Um, and you know, and the same kinds of oppositions uh, happening happening elsewhere as well, because it's got this GMO tag. So, really, in the whole region, even though 
at the very grassroots rural level people don't know about the whole gmo thing on and they're not bothered about the controversy in the urban areas where the ngos are based people if in public opinion polls say they would avoid gmos and that gmos are poisonous and that they you know bad for their children and so on you know so these these myths i think can be can be quite uh, pernicious can really stick in people's minds because it, they they basically play on this idea there's some kind of contamination in your food I mean, in, ba in Bangladesh, which is another place I've spent a lot of time, the aunties were going around saying that the farmers should not cultivate BT uh, eggplants, brinjal, because it would make their kids paralyzed. But the alternative there was that they carried on using a lot of uh, sprayed insecticides. Mm -hmm. So you have these environmental groups going out saying, yes, carry on using insecticides because the GMO is poisonous. You know, this is the kind of topsy-turvy <laughs> um, world that we're, that we're living in with this whole debate because things have just gone i think so far and such an extreme that, that, that there isn't really any space for rational you know rational thinking anymore yeah somebody asked me about uh about the uganda situation with the uh with the banana or that could be released the uh, the bacterial resistant banana vitamin a uh containing banana and they said why would anyone possibly oppose this like what is the reason for them to dig in their heels especially environmental groups that would now open up opportunities to use more insecticide and it's not insecticide like we use up here it's you know old school uh, organophosphates carbamates all this stuff that we don't really use as much but you know and i said to them that i think it's really a question of the activists don't want there to be that first domino that once the technology helps people in a way that can be quantified and uh and reported it, um, that that would be a bad thing for their cause, and does that seem to be your um, your take as well? Yeah, I mean, that, that's exactly right. That's that's been Greenpeace's argument against golden rice as well for all these years is that it's a is that it's a Trojan horse. Therefore, if you allow, from their perspective, if you allow a GMO to be successful and to help poorer people, then the argument that they have, which is that it's a hundred percent bad and should be banned in all circumstances, falls away. So they can't ever allow it to, to succeed anywhere, or they can't ever admit that it's succeeding anywhere, so they have to try and block it everywhere. And so it's a very much a kind of, it's a manichaean, it's a good evil, it's a black and white world that they live in, and they can't see shades of grey, and they can't see any kind of pragmatic instances. Because remember, what they're asking for is for farmers to, to use land races, indigenous varieties, to use agroecological concepts, which, by the way, are very Western, these aren't. These are things which they've imported themselves, but leave that to one side. But they're essentially saying that um, the poorest farmers in the world should use the lowest productivity crops and the lowest productivity techniques. Now, just think about that for a minute. That means that people who have very few resources and are food insecure should not get good harvest and should have a very low supply of food. Now, how can you say that? How can you morally make that case as an NGO? And again, that's why I say you have to understand their worldview and understand that they come from post-industrial societies where people have had plenty for generations and are kind of rebelling against it and want to go back to the land and give up technology and you know go off grid and grow their own food and all of this kind of stuff which is fine when you're when you're you're ill because you've got too much these people are ill because they've got too little and that's a very different issue yeah it's always funny when someone wants to tell me about how we need to have agroecological pr uh, practices and we need to grow our own food and you know but they're they're sitting in Kauai or someplace like that you know uh, talk to me about the person in Edmonton Canada who uh, is going to eat 
pickled vegetables for nine months of the year because that's what they could grow on their farm during the three months that they could actually put something in the ground. And it's such a myopic view. Um, what are what were some of the other really key crops that you've seen aside from the water efficient maize? Is anything else that really stands out as a potential innovation for Africa? Well, I mean, what we both talk, what we both saw was the banana bacteria wilt resistant um, varieties. Um, now that that's a big issue because the bacterial wilt is across the whole of the country, and it's very difficult to control with um, with any kind of conventional means. I mean that you can sterilize their equipment, but it still gets spread by insects and stuff. So that's uh, it's been a real it's been a real curse for farmers who are growing the traditional uh, matoke variety of bananas, which is their staple food. So they they have this as you saw they have this sort of mashed steamed banana, which is the thing that we got served every day at the conference, which you have with beans or meat or something. Um, and the resistant varieties you um, have two genes. Both originating, I think, from uh, from from sweet pepper from capsicum. So they're kind of in they're in a vegetable, which helps reassure people that it's something you can eat. Um, so there's resistance genes there, which have in some lines proven 100% uh, effective, and they've been now um, crossbred into into the East Island um, Highland banana, East African Highland banana, which is the the one that we're talking about. So the farmer farmers will actually be able to continue using their preferred varieties but just with the resistance gene in it and you know bananas are, are a really difficult thing to work with you i'm sure you know more about this than me but they you know in terms of tissue culture i mean they don't produce pollen and seeds so you can't do conventional back crossing and breeding and stuff with them so in some ways it's probably the one of the places where you do need to use molecular breeding um to, to, to get to get anywhere because bananas are so difficult um in terms of just the way that they are have you have you heard anything about uh, fall armyworm over in the African continent? Yeah, I mean, I've, we saw evidence. I've seen evidence of that in lots of places. Um, but it's controlled by spraying really severe insecticides at the moment. So even people I met who were organic farmers said, oh, I said, well, how, you know, the, the, the worms have gone. I mean, there's a lot of evidence of them having munched your corn crop, but what did you do? And they said, we sprayed. Um, and the, the armyworm, though, has quite a short lifespan and quite high resistance so it'll, it'll get resistance to these insecticides quite quickly so that's not really a long-term solution of course you've got the environmental um issues as well and the costs of these insecticides because they're very unregulated i mean they buy them in you know in small shops in every single village and god knows what's in these things i mean they make everybody sick as well but it's better than having no crop uh, so the bt gene which is also part of the wema project could really help there I mean, the resistance won't be total and it won't be forever either but it's, it's at least uh you know should buy them a few years um, to control this uh, very invasive pest. Yeah, from what I understand, it looks like the fall armyworm could have increasingly larger impacts in places like Kenya. Um, some folks I've talked to have said that this is a famine waiting to happen because there's so many crops that are just decimated. I guess Nigeria lost uh, mountains of, of, of tomato and uh, other crops to fall armyworm this last year. And I don't know about tomato. I mean, it's um, I don't know how um, crop specific it is, but it certainly eats maize, um, corn rather. Yeah. Now, I don't know whether it's um, whether it eats solanaceae or not, but um, it's it's a pretty voracious thing. I mean, but it's a uh, lepidopteran, so it's it's very susceptible to the PT gene. So that that should control it if um, if if it's allowed to do so. Yeah, they they were talking about at the conference that in South Africa, they have some level of control because of the BT for um, uh, the corn the rootworm. Uh, they do have that BT 
available in Africa or in South Africa, and it does work somewhat against fall armyworm, at least to suppress it. And so there's some evidence that a BT that's not even targeted to lepidopterans has some effect at helping out. So that that's another really important one. Uh, what other ones have you seen on the ground over there? So we talked about the drought resistance about uh, in, in uh, corn and maize. Uh, we talked about this fall armyworm thing about the Matoki banana. Uh, what about cassava? Is there anything uh, that you've seen that particularly sticks out in your mind? Well, cassava is the other big um, food security crop. So if all else fails, people generally fall back on their cassava. And every backyard plot has, has these cassava plants uh, and they're also clonally propagated by the way so they so so they're all genetically quite closely related to each other in that you you just take a stalk and you stick the stalk in the ground you know you chop 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 a stalk up into pieces and those are the, those are what's distributed so they're not grown from seed or from um, something like that um but they have these big uh tubers that go deep into the ground and they last a long time they're quite drought tolerant um so they are a really important uh, food security crop, and they're also culturally quite important. But they've been hit by these viruses. So there's a combination of, uh, of a mosaic virus and a virus called brown streak virus, which affects the tubers. Um, and so the scientists have had a, a quite a difficult time trying to balance resistances which uh, affect both viruses because they had there was a problem initially where they thought they had a resistant variety to mosaic, and they put the brown streak resistance gene in there, and that that knocked out the mosaic resistance and so it's been technically quite challenging as well but i think in the latest round of trials they should have resistance to both viruses now and that potentially with the biosafety law having passed in uganda we should be looking at being able to i mean with conventional field trials you build it with farmers you don't have to have a padlock you don't have to have a big fence and you don't have to have this whole gmo nonsense attached to the whole thing uh, and so then farmers if they if they're allowed to grow it and to participate in the in the breeding and the development process, then then you can get the right varieties for them, and you can check the environment, and you can check that it works with their agronomy, with their agricultural practices that they that they're always doing. Um, and so, hopefully, with a more liberal environment, the plant scientists will be able to work more closely in collaboration with the potential beneficiaries, the small farmers, to to actually make these crops work. Yeah, so that was really, you know, you've talked about a number of different innovations that could really change the lives of small farmers. And I guess something like 80% of people in Africa are small subsistence farmers. But when you talk about the pushback, you mentioned that the the West and Western NGOs, they talk about this idea of health effects. But what are the other major, do they really worry about things like uh, appealing to the colonial uh, control or to maybe uh, multinationals controlling the crops or what are some of the other things they use to uh, kind of poison the well for lack of a better term um, regarding genetic engineered crops well I mean a lot of them I think must be arguments of convenience because they talk about contamination for example right but how can you have contamination even though that's a very loaded term or even cross-pollination when you've got a crop that doesn't pollinate like banana I mean, they don't produce pollen, they don't produce seeds. So how are you going to get these genes spreading around from banana to banana, even if that was a concern, which it's not? And so a lot of these arguments don't even make basic um, sense. But they're there because people don't know any different. I mean, <laughs> the, I mean, they can be just ridiculous. I mean, I've, I've heard um, there were some of the aunties who were going out into the villages in Uganda and saying... Um, they'll take a, a gene from a snake and they'll put it into a banana to make the banana long like a snake, 
right? <laughs> so that's the level of the of the debate that we're talking about. When you know these are not people with degrees in molecular biology, and I'm talking about the, the villagers here. Nor do they know Photoshop, by the way. And so some of the antis show these um, these ghastly, uh, mocked up pictures of like babies' heads emerging from ears of corn, and you know dark skies overhead and stuff like that. And so these are these are GMOs. So when these plant scientists come around and say you, you could use the GMOs, you must say no because this is what this means. Um, you know, and these are places where people still they still have witch doctors. They still believe in witchcraft, and there's all sorts of superstitious stuff going on underneath the surface. So. And of course, that's the same everywhere. It's not unique to Africa. And so people are quite susceptible to, to this kind of, really this kind of extreme levels of scaremongering. And, and it, it is very damaging because then you try to have a rational debate, but it's not, a ration, it's not really a rational concern that's being, that's being had. Yeah, that's a, and that's really an important point, and that's why it's so, um, why this is such a problem, because people on the ground there, uh, in, in much, they have a, a society and a culture that uh, th- that we don't necessarily translate exactly right. That you know we don't know how to translate to that, and that's why it's so wonderful to have people on the ground there who are from there who know how to talk to people in the, in really what is their own um, uh, familiarity. You know, I think that that really helps a lot. But how do you how do you turn this ship around? I mean, if the NGOs have really done a great job at making sure that these technologies are considered uh, uh, dangerous or contamination or whatever, how do we begin to shift that? And how is the Cornell Alliance for Science really driving that change? Well, I mean, it's, so far as we can see, the farmers. I mean, see, Africa is very different. In, in the US or in Europe, like, what is it, like 1% or 2% or 3% of most of the population is involved in farming. So people don't have any direct knowledge or experience of what, what agriculture actually involves or where their food comes from. It's not the same in sub-Saharan Africa where it's like 60 to 80% of the population is directly involved in food production. And so these people, they can see the benefits of a disease-resistant crop, right? If, if the banana doesn't die and it produces a good yield of banana which they can sell in the market or they can feed their families with then great so i think actually the 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 pragmatic arguments of having um having a crop that works better for you as a farmer is going to be much more um important in in an african context than it was in europe where we've just got so much food we've got all of these like foodie health obsessive things where we're gluten-free with this with that with it you know all of the stuff which comes with being a rich country um, in Africa, it's 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 different, and so I think these these traits, which are biotech or conventional, it doesn't matter, um, will will be taken up quite rapidly. And and the work that we've done with you know farmers and with um, uh, people who are based based in Africa suggests that these will be taken up when they're allowed to be done so, because the antis have blocked them in courts, they've blocked them in parliaments, they've blocked them in the in the um, in in the capital cities, you know, with policymakers, with lobbying a president, stuff like that, and and in the media as well. But you know the newspapers they don't they don't change this completely. So I, I I'm quite hopeful, and you get this from you, when you speak to the extension agents who are you know they're working at the grassroots um, and then with some of our fellows from Uganda, Tanzania, Kenya, and elsewhere, they're pretty confident that when this tech this technology is does become available and the people at the grassroots are, are allowed to make the choice of whether or not to adopt it, they will they will do so. Uh, and that all of these years that the plant scientists have been slaving away in their laboratories won't have been wasted. Okay, so Mark, you know, thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. I, one thing I wanted to tell you about was uh, I've seen the movie Food Evolution 
probably 30 times now <laughs> um, from sitting on panels. And, well, then I've seen it. I'm in it. And, uh, it's, I've, it I'm, I can almost recite it. And uh, the best part is you always get the biggest laugh. <laughs> Your part at the end when you say the, um, uh, you know, what do we want? Safe technology. When do we want it? <laughs> or, Oh, so as soon as the objective data has been gathered and replicated and published in a peer-reviewed journal, and you know, such, yeah, yeah, because it, it, it's just it's just kind of ridiculous. But it it is, you know, that's what we're up against. We're we're trying to you know do good science in the face of of, of these of easy easy memes and myths. Um, so I get the bit that I most remember is um the uh, the anti-GMO woman. I think it's Zen Honeycutt saying, yeah. "I don't believe what the doctors say. I don't believe what's in the scientific literature. I believe what blog posts say, and I believe what's on Facebook because those people have got no reason to lie to me." And I'm like, that perfectly sums up what's going wrong. Oh yeah, and in her blog and her her um, misinformation empire is really influential and i i know that this week she went after orange juice and you know apparently they're finding that you know her she claims to find glyphosate in orange juice yet publishes this on a website without any um materials and methods without any kinds of controls um and it it's so weak especially because we're in a crisis here in my state where this major crop is really on the ropes between disease and hurricanes and this is just something that, you know, now I have to spend a day writing an article talking about the shortcomings of a website written by somebody who willfully says, I reject science. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you, these these people, I actually do struggle to maintain respect for them because they're part of the what's called the worried well. People who've just got so much of everything, they're just basically spoiled brats and they're trying to find something to worry about and something to moan about and potentially something to make money off. Um, by just believing all sorts of random nonsense. I mean, it's 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 kind of latter day superstition, and you know we have to fight against it. Yeah, well, I agree a thousand percent, and I think food evolution goes a long way to do that. I think it really is a cornerstone of things going forward. Um, and and one one place where people didn't laugh was in Colombia. So they translated when they translate your joke to Spanish. I think that <laughs> it didn't it didn't really bring the audience down, but there's a lot of places it's the high point of the entire That's thing. That's quite funny. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, you know, Mark. So thank you so much for joining me today. If people want to uh, follow you or learn more about what you do, or maybe have a good early knowledge of the book that's coming out, where do they find you on social media? Uh, social media. I'm on Twitter, uh, Mark underscore Linus. I think. Um, the Alliance for Science also has a Sci Ally um, social media account. The um, Cornell Alliance for Science has a has a good web presence as well. We produce a lot of latest news about all of these different things we've been talking about in Uganda, Bangladesh, and elsewhere. So um, subscribe to that, and we'll send you the the latest of um, the kind of the pro core GMOs work that's going on around the world. Very good. Well, thank you very much for joining me today, and I hope I get to see you again pretty soon. Likewise, Kevin. Look forward to it. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Please send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review on iTunes and recommend this podcast to a friend. More downloads and reviews raise the visibility of this podcast and help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, 
scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at collabra.app. C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.